And as you return, if you would please turn in your copy of the scriptures to Malachi chapter 2, actually. The last verse in chapter 2. The title question for this morning actually comes from the last verse just before Malachi 3. The scripture we're going to dig into this morning answers the defiant question Israel railed at God at the end of chapter 2. Look at Malachi 2 verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? What do you think of that question? Where is the God of justice? Is it a bad question? Is it a good question to ask? Is it, is it a logical question? Is it a question that is ancient and only asked by Jews 2,500 years ago in the Middle East under great duress? Obviously not. It's not, is it? A month ago I approached a man getting into his car outside a bar downtown and asked him if he believed that there was a God. With a bitter, angry reply, he told me, you don't want to talk with me about that. As some of you know, I don't stop easily. (laughs) I said, yes, I do. Why, Why is that? His terse response was, if there is a God, he would never put up with all this blankety blank that is going on everywhere in this world. And I tried to interject that there are some reasons for that, but he would have none of it, and he shut the door and drove away. I don't know his heart. I don't know whether sin had hardened him to unbelief or he simply used that reply as a shield to avoid further conversation or whether he was just escaping accountability to the God that he knows exists. I don't know. But he likely was reading the same headlines many of us do today. Russia amps up operations as rockets pound Ukraine. January 6th panel subpoenas Secret Service for erased texts. Montana dust storm kills at least six, two children. 19 children killed in Southern Texas Elementary School classroom. More than 66 million preborn children murdered in our country over the last 50 years. Justice. Or maybe some of you have had experiences. The farmer a mile over who is known for drunkenness, carousing, and cursing has a bumper year of wheat harvest and yours was struck by hail, leaving only 30% standing. The project you worked long and hard on for many overtime hours, sacrificing family, 
somehow is credited to the person you see leaving early each day and, and today with a bonus check. Justice. There are cries for justice from practically every existing social group on earth, including minorities and majorities, liberal and conservatives. One thing that is common is that no one feels they are receiving justice. Like a football game raging back and forth, one group gains ground for what they say is justice while depriving another group of what they feel is their justice. It's a mess, isn't it? Have you ever wondered, at least for a moment, where is the God of justice? Not, not necessarily is there as a God of justice, but, but why does he not do something about what is going on? Justice. What, what is it? Uh, this morning, the word used is mishpat. It's a Hebrew word according to the concordance, Strong's Concordance says, it is a verdict pronounced judiciously. It is a census or sentence or formal decree of human or divine law. But justice is, is far more. Justice is a manifestation. It's a demonstration of the character of God. It is God on display in life. It is all that is in agreement with the ways or character of God as shown in His Word. Any law, any enforcement of law, and any verdict given regarding a law, any of those that are not in agreement with the character of God, the will of God, any of those would be injustice or not justice. And you see, God supersedes justice. He is not bound by justice, as if justice was a standard that God must attain to. He is by nature just. His ways and character, who He is, define what justice is. We may say that justice defines God, but actually the ways of God define what justice is. God was God before justice was ever coined. Justice describes the character of God. While there are many competing definitions for the word justice, and if you go online you will see a vast host of them. In Christian contexts, in secular contexts, everybody it seems like has their own definition. It can be difficult to put into succinct verbiage. Justice is demonstrated by God throughout the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. In all his dealings with all of mankind and all of creation. I praise God, I thank him that we have his word so that we of all people on earth know what justice is. We may not be able to put it in a concise, acceptable even definition to all people. But we know the God of justice. And we know his character from what he has written here. And we can understand and if we struggle we know justice is described to us. It is communicated to us by the life of God in his word. By his living through his people. By his word to us through his word. 
by his son that was sent, by his Holy Spirit. We are not left trying to figure out what is justice. The word of God tells us clearly. And we know he who is just. Yahweh is always just. Not because he must be. But because that is one characteristic of who he is. It is his essence. Psalm 25.9 says the humble he guides in justice. Psalm 33.5 he loves righteousness and justice. Psalm 111, the words of his hand, the works of his hands are verity and justice. Isaiah 30, verse 18, therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you, and there he, therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. And Isaiah 9, verse 7, and these next three verses are justice displayed through the Son of God, the Messiah. Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over His kingdom, and it's declaring who this Messiah will be, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah 42.1 Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And finally, Isaiah 42.3 A scripture of great comfort, of great encouragement. A bruised reed he will not break. And smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. Now this is only a shallow dip into the sea of God's justice. But it's an important place to start. How could the Israelites actually claim what they claim? What did the Israelites have to complain about? Why did they dare to say in the face of God, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them? Or where is the God of justice? Remember, remember these Israelites in their context here. They had joyfully come out of Babylon and returned to their promised land over a century earlier. At first, spirits were appropriately high. This return was a miracle of God. Zerubbabel had been appointed by God as their governor and named God's signet ring. The replacement temple had been built and sacrifices to Yahweh had been restored that perhaps they had thought never again would occur. And in Nehemiah 8 verse, at chapter 8 verse 10, Nehemiah 8 through 10, here the people have reconfirmed their covenant with God. How glorious those days were. They were humble, they were difficult, but they were striving and they were growing. But now 100 grueling years later, and there is great disappointment. Verhoff points out, the later course of events had been disappointing. The Messianic age had not yet arrived. The people were still subject to Persian rule. The promised land did not become a paradise 
But instead, crops failed due to locusts and drought. Religious activities were coming bur becoming burdensome and without spiritual effect. Priests and people alike were violating the covenants of the Father. And if you remember, their nation, the population, the geography, the economy, and the spiritual life had all but shriveled up to nothing. The glory days were long past. And there was a moment perhaps of thinking they could be obtained again. But that will not happen. The prophecy of Zephaniah rang out. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency. Who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Where is he? Since evildoers were apparently getting away with no punishment, did God now endorse evil and the doers of evil? Or, if that's not true, then why doesn't this God of justice do something? Such blathering, fearless taunting of God, it says, wearied him. It wearied him. It's literally like what we say. He plain got tired of hearing their complaints. A commentator said on the basis, and listen to this because this is us so often. On the basis of their own experiences, the speakers have come to the blasphemous conclusion that God now has contradicted his own injunction. Injunction. In his eyes, it is good to do evil. How often do we look at things from our own experience and say, this is truth. How often does that override the word of God? The question, where is the God of justice? Here is Yahweh's answer. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. A messenger is coming. First of all, my messenger. This is actually the word Malak or Malachi. My messenger comes to prepare the way before me. And my messenger, although it is Malachi, is not the Malachi that we are reading from. He is not that one. But this is the statement here of a king. Only one in authority could make such a statement and back it up. He is simply, he is simply saying, I'm not going to slide in over the border and quietly arrive. His messenger will come and announce his arrival. He will pave the way for the Lord. He will remove trees and boulders, clear roadways, smooth out the services. Such was the common practice in those days. When a king would enter into another province or another domain, he would send messengers ahead and they would literally go and pave the way before the king's arrival, removing anything in his way. That is how he would enter. My messenger, though, says the Lord, is not me. He is a preparer for my coming. Now, the messenger is obviously important. 
And he carries authority given to him by the king. But he is not the king. You see, Malachi here is quoting. Malachi himself is quoting from another prophet. Isaiah chapter 40 verses 3 through 4. Here we read the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the deserts a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. We see in the Gospels that all four of the New Testament Gospel writers testify that this messenger that he speaks of in Malachi and in Isaiah chapter 40 is none other than John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Spoken of in Isaiah, spoken of in Malachi, spoken of throughout the Gospels. And John himself points to the authority and the power of the coming Lord saying in Luke chapter 3.16 I indeed baptize you with water but one mightier than I is coming whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And in John 1.34 he puts it quite plainly. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. That one, that one, Malachi goes on to say, is coming. Verse 1, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord is coming. Now, think of this. We, we often hear it at Christmas and it, it's so glorious. Uh, he is coming. Prepare the way. Those things. And, and we're excited for it. But what was it being said to these folks at that point by Malachi? How was it termed? This is actually a warning. This is a warning to these sullen and belligerent rebels that they don't have any idea who they are messing with right now. Nor do they have any idea what they are talking about when they say these things before God. The Lord whom you seek. That's the sovereign one. It's Adonai there. You are searching for. You are searching for him in word only. Their actions have shown that they give far more honor to an earthly governor or father or master than they do to the Lord of the hosts. The Lord of the hosts of the universe. The Lord whom you seek. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Again, irony here. Sarcasm. They have long left faithfulness to the covenant of this messenger. This messenger, again, is not the earlier one. It's not the John the Baptist type of messenger. It's not the Elijah type messenger. This messenger now spoken in verse 1. This messenger is now the Lord. The covenant making Lord. The Israelites obedience amounts to bringing in what? They're bringing in mangy, sick, blind, injured animals for sacrifice. And what? They do it fairly often. They have clearly broken the requirements for sacrifice offerings. They have trampled the laws regarding the faithfulness in their marriages. And they have committed wholesale adultery and the marrying of wives, bringing them into 
literal idolatry. Is this really the one whom they seek? The one whom they delight in? No. And Malachi knows that. He, he pitches this out to them. To their impertinent question, where is the God of justice? James Montgomery Boyce stated, to this God, to this, God replied, that although he is co his coming has been long delayed, it had nevertheless not been canceled. This one whom they seek and delight in is actually going to come. And it will not turn out like they think. Verse 2 says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like a launderer's soap. That is not a pretty picture. The refining fire required to serve. There is a hopelessness here. A hopelessness of the sin. Who will be able to stand out? These questions cry out for a loud resounding what? Is anybody holding up? No. They're saying no one will be able to stand. No one will be able to stand before the pure and holy God when he comes out to carry his justice upon the earth. As Paul Washer once said, you will melt before God like a tiny wax figurine before a blast furnace. The holiness of God and his wrath, it will be more terrifying than to literally imagine the annihilation of the entire planet. It will be in a cosmos type of a setting in, in, with a picture of holiness and righteousness that, that can't even, I can't even begin to speak. It will be terrifying. It is like a refiner's fire with heat so intense that it liquefies. That heat that liquefies, it breaks down and it separates the impurities from the pure metal. His coming will be like the harsh lye soap of the launderer that separates the stain from the garment's cloth. Verse 3 says, He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. There is hope here. It is harsh. It is hard. But there is something beautiful that is happening here. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Let me read this quote from Boyce and it's fairly lengthy but I thought it was beautiful. Although God says that he is coming in judgment it is only to testify against sinners. And the verses that got come before this speak not of a final judgment that results in men and women being sent to hell but of a purification process in which the priests and Levites will be refined like gold and silver and the Lord will have men offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. According to this image, God will be like a refiner of silver 
Workers of silver can still be seen today in oriental bazaars. They melt the ore in small portable furnaces and as the ore melts, the dross rises to the top and is then scraped off by the refiner. The workman keeps peering into the crucible, removing dross until he can see his face in the molten metal as in a mirror. And now that the work, and know that the work is done. In such a man, God will apply the heat of affliction and discipline until he can see his image in his people. In spite of the people's demand for justice, when God should come to his people in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, it would not be for an immediate judgment on sin, however much they deserve it, but for God's own gracious work of redemption. He would come to seek and to save the lost, to bring healing and to purify his elect people. Only after that gracious work would judgment come. Please turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Verses 16 through 19. Luke chapter 4. Beginning with verse 16. So he came to Nazareth, this is about Jesus, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened, had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now, Please picture carefully in your mind. I'm sure many of you are doing this. Here is Jesus. He has entered the synagogue. There are many elders around this room. And the scroll has been given to him to read. And it has been brought to him in this specific spot is for him to pronounce at this very moment. And there is a solemn hush across the room. And the Son of God begins to read. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today this scripture, Isaiah, is fulfilled in your hearing. How bold was that? No one can claim what he just claimed unless he is the Messiah, the promised only one of God. This man standing here had just read this messianic prophetic scripture and said this is me. This I'm reading is me. 
amazing, deep, profound, clear announcement of who this is. But there is also something very interesting in what Jesus did not read from that passage. The phrase that came immediately after where Jesus stops in Isaiah 61 verse 2 is, and the day of vengeance of our God. That day of vengeance will come, but that day of vengeance was not the day of his first appearance. That was the day of his offered grace. His grace was proclaimed. That is him. The day of vengeance is set to come. Verse 5 here in Malachi chapter 3. And I will come near to you for judgment. This will be an intimate judgment. It will not be something you see from afar off. Each man will be faced, each woman will be faced by the pure and holy, righteous God. It will be an intimate judgment. He will come near. It will be a swift judgment. This is a judgment that is just like it sounds here. There will be no long consideration and deliberation. What is there to consider and deliberate? For a judge that knows all facts and details and includes the motives of the heart can give swift and just verdicts. And this will be a specific judgment. It will be against sorcerers. Sorcery was strictly forbidden in Israel. But the intermarriage with pagan neighbors had only fanned the flame of this wickedness. Now it was everywhere. Adulterers. He will judge against adulterers. Adultery, as we heard from Phil last week in the scriptures, it was hated by God. Malachi 2.14 Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. He will judge against perjurers, those who swear, swear falsely by the name of God. He will judge against those who exploit, those who oppress. He will judge against those who are oppressing the wage earners. These are the day workers. They make what they can each day. And we don't see a lot of that here. There was a time when it was more prominent. And in places all around the world, it is a daily, daily fact of life. You make enough daily to get by. And yet these, these employers, these masters, would fiddle with the wages. They would hold them back. They would increase demands. They were oppressive. Th- those who exploit or oppress widows and orphans. Why widows and orphans? They are at the heart of God. They are those who who often have no one who will speak of their defense. James, James even says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. And he will testify against those who turn away an alien, a foreigner living in Israel. There's an interesting, interesting twist here. One of the commentators gives this insightful comment. He says, It is remarkable that Malachi, who accused the people of contracting mixed marriages, in chapter 2, verse 11, took up the case of the sojourner and the alien. We're to have open hearts. We're to have generous hearts, compassionate hearts. 
towards those around us. These, these things are clear here. But here lies, at the end of verse 5, the root of the judgment. Because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The sins listed here were not exhaustive. They were symptoms of the heart that God will judge, expressed in, because they do not fear me. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 7 says, For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity, but fear God. Chapter 12, 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. 1 Peter 2, 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the king. Revelation 14 verses 6 through 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. To every nation, tribe, tongue and people. Saying with a loud voice. Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth. The sea and springs of water. It is the heart that God desires here. We are guilty of some of these. We are only saved by the Son of God, by what He has accomplished for us. But unless we fear God, we have none of that. We do not even know the Savior. Unless we have this fear of the Lord that drives us to Him, what is this fear? It is a fear. Sometimes we want to we soften it down. And yet it is probably greater than what we could even imagine it. This one whom we are to fear has the power to, to instantaneously incinerate us and leave us gone forever. He has the power to create the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And yet he has the power to make a dead and filthy sinner like me into a living son of God. He is all powerful and he holds the universe in his hand and he is to be feared and he is to be trusted for he is trustworthy. Now it would be a terrible thing if we were to fear him and he was not consistent and he was untrustworthy. But we can fear him and we must, but praise God, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is worthy. Back to the opening question. Where is the God of justice? Was it the question that brought God's judgment? Was it the frequency of the question? No, it was the fact that those who asked it, asked it from a soul that did not fear God. And I say that because we can sometimes come to these points of questions. Please turn with me to Psalm 73. And I have an assignment for you that I would like you to take home and if it's just you and your home, do it in, in your devotions tonight or, or tomorrow. If, if you have a family, maybe you could do this together. I want you to consider this. 
We're going to read Psalm 73, verses 1 through 14. But we're going to stop at 14. Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to such are as pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance, and they have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks to the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge, no, and is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. That's heavy, isn't it? Now, I don't want you to read further yet, but I do want you to read further. Later on, I want you to read this through in your personal or family devotion time. Read the remainder of this psalm and see if you can determine what is the difference between the taunting complaint of the Israelites in Malachi 3 and Asaph in Psalm 73. Both have heavy hearts. Both are crying out with some sense of injustice in their minds. But what's the difference in Psalm 73? Uh, close your Bible, please. You're probably reading ahead. I can tell that. <laughs> I'm going to close here. One more amazing thing about justice. Proverbs 17.5. Turn over to Proverbs 17.5 if you would. says, he, he who justifies the wicked and he con, who condemns the just, even they both are an abomination to the Lord. That is a dilemma all about justice, isn't it? How can this be just? If, if, I'm sure if we knew the sin of any one of you that was plastered up on this wall, as, as we've been told in other messages by other men, the person who owned that list would, would run out of here in embarrassment and shame. That is certainly true of my life. How could one as filthy as I be accepted into the presence of a holy and righteous God who has never for once even entertained the slightest element of evil or wicked or sin. He has been pure and holy for eternity. Perfect. Perfect in justice. Perfect in goodness and righteousness. How, how could I ever come into his presence? That would be the greatest of injustice. It would not be right. The rules would have to be broken 
for that to happen, it seems. And some of you know what I'm saying. Some of you are, are hesitant to follow Christ because of that. Romans 3.24 says, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Being justified, justice, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? What does this mean for you? This means that by Christ taking to Himself, by Christ taking to Himself the accountability, the guilt for my sin, my filth, and then suffering through death, the penalty of that sin that was mine, but was taken by Him. And also Christ then giving me the accountability and reward of his completely obedient perfect life. A life that had not one single failure in it. And it is placed upon me like a mantle and a covering. I don't, I don't care what kind of life you've led. How deep you've been in sin. What your past has been. It, it cannot withstand the power of Christ's suffering to take it from you. If you will turn and place it upon him, trust him, repent and believe in this Jesus, he will take every bit of that sin and suffer for it and cleanse you completely. And not leave you naked to fall again, but he will place upon you a new identity. The identity of the perfect righteousness of Christ. Can you imagine such a thing? It, it, you can't imagine such a thing. I, you can't. I can't. We can't imagine perfect holiness. But that has been placed upon us. Us, the filthiest of men. It has been placed upon us and that sin that we have drug around as a weight, as a burden, has been lifted and, and not just stuck away somewhere where it can come back, but it has been erased because Christ has suffered and paid the price for it. It has been atoned for. My life, my life and the life of all who have faced Christ in repentance and faith, and believed in Him, is in agreement with the character of God. My life is in agreement with the character of God because of Christ. Justice required that my life of sin be punished with eternal condemnation in a godless hell. Forever. Never ending torment and isolation from God and everything good. But Christ's death on the cross for me fulfilled the demands that justice required. And now because of what Christ has done, my being a son of the living God and living for eternity with God is justice. That is where that God of justice is. He is living and alive and bringing men and women like you and I 
into the justice of God's gospel so that you can be his. And he will judge, but he has provided his son as an escape, as a way into eternal life. Do not put it away. Do not put it off. As the scriptures say, today is a day of salvation. We do not know what tomorrow holds. And I would say this, even if you did, why would you waste one more minute living under the, the, the dominion of Satan, the dominion of sin, the dominion of foolishness and selfishness, and avoid being a son and daughter of the living God? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for Malachi, that you brought this man to a, a despondent, belligerent people. And it appears that there was very little change. And Lord, we thank you for the word of God, and we pray that it will not be so with us when we read these scriptures, that there will be change, and that your spirit will change us, that, that you will work in us, perhaps like with intensity, Father, if that's what it takes, send the refiner's fire that will literally melt us and pull away the sin. Lord, the unfaithfulness, the pornography, the, the gluttony, the pride, the slander, the gossip, the jealousy, the envy, uh, the lying, the deception, the rebellion, uh, many things, Lord, we could, but what it all boils down to is we do not fear you. We, we know you are God and yet we not glorify you as God or give you thanks. So please move in the hearts of us, Lord, and purify us and bring us into the right relationship with us, those who do not know you. And Lord, those of us who trust you, please purify any of these sins from us as well. And please increase our fear of God and our awe of you that we would walk in a way that this world would see us as odd, as peculiar people, set apart for the glory of God, so that they perhaps would desire to seek you. Please use us, our words, our decisions, our life, Lord, to bring glory to your name. We thank you that you will come. For those of us who trust in you, we look forward to that with great joy. Yet we know it will be a terrible day. But we look forward with great confidence for everything will be made right. But Lord, we plead for the lost in this room. Father, that you will have mercy upon them and that their hearts would turn towards Christ. And we pray, Lord, uh, just go ahead. We pray for many of our own family members, extended family members, our neighbors, co-workers that sit right beside us. Uh, Lord, people that, that we, we have grown to love and know, but we know will not follow you. Please use us, Lord. Please work in their hearts, for you will return as you justly ought. Lord, we, we pray that that will come soon and that you will bring an end to, to sin on this planet. In your name we pray, amen.